Hello listeners, welcome to another episode of Anti-Culture. I'm your host Josiah Sinanin and thanks for pressing play today. I'm really looking forward to sharing this next conversation with you. It's with a fellow reporter, a seasoned journalist, and an all-around super intelligent and attentive human who has so many stories to share. I was absolutely fascinated by our conversation and I think it will be a really interesting listen. Today we're headed to Canada's subarctic but we're also going to be speaking on the Russia-Ukraine conflict and international relations and touching on climate change. For those who don't know me personally, a fun fact is that my educational background is in international relations. I hold my bachelor's degree in the subject, and it's a field that I hope I will consistently return to in my own work currently as a reporter and through this podcast. So this opportunity to talk with our next guest was huge for me. Diplomacy is one of those things that always gets me curious and leads to some wonderful discussions if you're chatting with the right people, and Katie Toth is one of those people. I hope today you'll be open to stepping into a world you may not have considered, which is largely what the premise of this show is. Katie and I have actually never met in person, but we initially connected in January of 2021 when she was producing the CBC Network program Canada Tonight with Janella Massa. It is a news and current affairs program that airs weeknights on the CBC News Network, and Katie is how I got my foot in the door with my current job now. She had reached out to ask me to consider being a culture panelist on the show, and she in many ways was the reason why I am where I am now. I've always wanted to get into journalism since I was young, and her reaching out resulted in a chance to show my chops on television and actually start to network with the company. If you haven't heard it, I would also recommend checking out my interview with the host of that show, Janella Massa, which you can find earlier in the season. Katie has done so much work across the gambit of journalism and is now based in Yellowknife Northwest Territories. Her work is everywhere. NPR, Vice, even Teen Vogue. Her latest work is a special three-part miniseries within the podcast, Things That Go Boom, and it's called Cold Front. When Katie first sent me episode one, I was amazed. The linkages she's made, the people she's spoken to, and the story that's happening right now in front of our eyes was nothing short of a daunting task, I'm sure. If you haven't given much thought to the people who live in the Arctic, here is an opportunity for just that. But also an eye-opening example of how the Arctic is a crux in global politics that is now in a more complex situation than ever. Katie's love of the Arctic is something she's passed on to me through our conversation, and I hope you'll find the same as you take in our chat. So my name is Katie Toth. I'm a reporter and podcast producer. I live in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories in Canada in the subarctic, and Recently, I made a podcast called Cold Front. It's a three-part mini-series as part of a podcast uh, called Things That Go Boom uh, by Inkstick Media and PRX. And it's all about security and international relations in the North. And what made you decide to pursue that storyline of of the Arctic and international relations? Was there like a, a trigger event or how did you fall into that topic? Yeah, so... I have been working on this uh, U.S. national security podcast uh, for over a year now, the things that go boom. And I was having a lot of fun working on that. The team is amazing. It's a very feminist team, woman-led team. And I 
also had been living in the North in Yellowknife, uh, driving around in my little truck. And I was just thinking to myself for a while, like, it would be so cool if I could find a way to combine these two pieces of my life. Driving around in Yellowknife, there's a like a JTFN, uh, Joint Task Force North, like the main military installation is like right in the heart of the city. So you're often seeing people sort of like walk around in camo. In Yellowknife too, you also have a lot of geologists, people who are interested in science, uh, who are sort of traveling around other parts of the North talking about their finds. So weirdly, this town that sometimes feels very, very remote also can sometimes feel like very connected to the rest of the world and attached to the rest of the world in a way that I really love. And so I was thinking, how cool would it be to talk about these issues from this place where I live? Then Russia invaded Ukraine. And suddenly uh, that was something that was really overturning the, basically the balance of power and the world order that we had seen for years since the Cold War ended. And people started talking about it and feeling it in places like Yellowknife too. Our uh, Premier of the Northwest Territories asked the Prime Minister of Canada, what are you going to do to be protecting the North and protecting the sovereignty of the North? Like, what's your plan here? Um, there were a couple other sort of moments like that where clearly this war was having reverberations in the north and so that idea that had kind of been percolating in my head of like oh cool like you know the arctic as a security front might be an interesting podcast suddenly became much much more urgent it's such a cool topic with this look into the Arctic that you're you're investigating because we see it as a, a peaceful area. It's kind of co-owned by a few countries, co-owned in quotation marks, of course. And when Russia invaded Ukraine, I think we didn't even think about the Arctic because Ukraine is south of Russia and it's completely different. And so how did you initially make that connection? Like what got you thinking about that? Yeah, so I have been living in Yellowknife since um, 2018. Um, and so when I moved to Yellowknife, it was for a job with CBC North, the local CBC Bureau. And right away, I started noticing that national security issues were like on the front of a lot of people's minds in the North all the time. Like people are really interested in Arctic cooperation. They're really interested in collaboration with Alaska and Arctic Europe and not just national security, but just sort of like international collaboration with other Arctic countries and other Northern countries. Yellowknife is technically not the Arctic, it's the subarctic, but other, other Northern areas, right? I think like a lot of people sort of who live in the North have a strong identity as being Northerners. And like, I guess not everyone, but I guess for me, it was really, I should say for me personally, it was like really interesting to sort of become part of this sort of like circumpolar community of like people who live in the North. Um, and so like living there for me, I got more and more interested in what things were like from the perspective of other Northern countries and what it meant to be sort of like facing uh, Europe and Russia through 
like this entirely different front, this, you know, Arctic front. Um, so I guess I should, like, I guess I should really say that I got more curious about it. And I was like, particularly interested in this. Um, and the region is just like, it's a cool place. It's cold and it's cool. And so I was like living in Yellowknife for a few years and reporting on both like local stories, but also uh, interested in security stories when I could make that work. Um, and I mean, I guess when you're living in a place, you sort of like always see those connections in a way that you might not if you don't. So when Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, very soon after that, the premier of the Northwest Territories and the premier of the Yukon, they, you know, asked the prime minister of Canada, like, what are you doing to protect sovereignty and security in the North? You know, like, we are not that far from Russia. Like, what are you doing to like, keep an eye out for us? So that was sort of an interaction that I think probably went overlooked for like a lot of people because there were other things going on, like the actual invasion, right? Um, but it was on the mind of like our premiers up here. So like hearing that kind of thing and like picking up on that being like, hmm, like this is interesting that people seem to be sort of worried or concerned about this or wanting to see more, um, more support in that way made me wanna start asking more questions. As a journalist being up North, I mean, my perception i've never done work up there but it seems like it gets overlooked quite a lot or maybe the those kind of issues aren't taken seriously or or considered on a larger scale like nationally or internationally why do you think that is and is it the same in in uh, arctic europe and in alaska as well do you think it's an overlooked region in general well, one thing that I learned uh, making this podcast is that the majority of Americans, like um, more more than 60%, don't know that thousands of people who are U.S. residents live north of the Arctic Circle. So that is wild to me that you have Alaska and you have people living in the furthest north of Alaska and most Americans don't even know that, right? So I would say it's not just a Canada thing, ignoring the North. Um, that's like why the US is called the reluctant Arctic state. Um, mm, I haven't so, heard that actually, okay. Yeah, yeah, so they're an Arctic state, but doesn't not as invested in the Arctic. It's a little different somewhere like Canada where I do feel like um, the Arctic sometimes gets uh, overlooked or the North gets overlooked but it also simultaneously is a big part of uh, Canadians' identity, particularly, I'm talking particularly about settler Canadians, right? Like taking on sort of like these ideas about sort of like cold and Northern exploration as like part of like what makes us hardy people um, when really there's like, the vast majority of Canadians are like in Toronto or Calgary or like Montreal. Like they're not actually like going out and like exploring the furthest polar reaches, but we sort of take on that identity. It's like another form. I would say it's another form of colonialism, right? We like take on those ideas and like use them to like build a national identity. So, um, so U.S. doesn't do that as much in the same way. Um, but 
even though Canada does do that, we don't necessarily always invest in the North. I mean, living in Yellowknife, I know that our internet is terrible. And that is something that has been the case for a very long time. In uh, much of Canada north of 60, the internet is sporadic at best, uh, low latency, and something that was really interesting working on the podcast that I realized is um, we sort of like struggled to get some of those like infrastructure investments. Um, and then meanwhile, uh, Huawei is working with like uh, Ice Wireless, like or was at the time uh, to try to like uh, bring hardware to certain Northern communities so that people could get like better 4D internet. And then, of course, uh, that got shut down, that got kiboshed uh, by the Trudeau government for national security reasons, um, because there's concerns that uh, Huawei equipment could be used for spying uh, by the Chinese government. Um, Huawei says that they're not um, that they're not affiliated with the Chinese government that way, but uh, there are some very legitimate concerns about that. But all this to say that if maybe we had good internet and phone service in the first place, then, you know, this other company wouldn't really be able to, you know, uh, start trying to get contracts to build infrastructure here, right? So I think a big part of investment and being present and supporting the North uh, is really just like basic infrastructure stuff. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it's so crazy because I think there's so many well, there's so many complex issues that are ongoing and there's so many actors involved too. And it's kind of this weird space where, I mean, we're all preconditioned to have that 80s mindset of like thinking of the world in the Cold War terms, I think still, and it's kind of coming back. But here we see the conglomeration of all those actors in one place that is untouched but an issue of national security for everyone. And... I know you get into some of that in the podcast as well, and it's it's over three episodes too, so you really condensed your work, which is really exciting. But what do you think is the most pressing issue after you've looked at all these different angles in the Arctic? And like, what do you think is the most uh, poignant takeaway? I mean, I think traditionally by people from the South, the Arctic has been seen as a resource bank as like a place to get things. Um, Someone I talked to pointed out that, you know, for centuries people have been looking for things in the Arctic, Um, you know, whalers looking for oil, uh, British explorers looking for shipping routes, now like miners looking for minerals. And then you even now have conservationists who want to sort of stop all development, kind of like put the Arctic in a snow globe. And in some ways, even that is about like seeing the Arctic as a resource, like a, a clout resource or to like tick off an environmental box that you think is just like too hard to do somewhere else. And so I guess the big takeaway for me is that the people who make decisions about the Arctic should be the people whose homes are in the Arctic. Uh, if you live somewhere, uh, you may still use the land, you may still I want to see even like mining or extraction development in the land in a way that you you see the land being able to handle. Um, But just generally you treat something more respectfully when it's your home. Um, And I think that that's the real takeaway is that like any land use or development has to be led by 
the people who live in the north. So recently I went to this conference in Arctic Norway um, where this was very shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine. And so there were a lot of European EU officials and other European officials talking about how this means that we need to get off Russian energy and move on to European energy for our own like sovereignty and security. And so again, there was like a lot of talk about, okay, well, we can get a lot of resources from Arctic Norway. Um, and one of those resources that people have been sort of trying to build in Arctic Norway is a wind farm uh, that would be on Sami land, on traditional indigenous Arctic land uh, that is also reindeer herding territory. And so Sami people, especially in Norway have said, well, we would really prefer not um, this is some of the last reindeer herding land that we have, and you can't just use it to build ostensibly green energy. So I was talking with the Sami, I was talking with this, uh, Sami parliamentarian in Norway, his name is Beska Nilius. And for him, this wind farm that people, uh, in the South really want to put on traditional Sami land is just a huge affront to both his culture uh, and also his sovereignty. Um, he says that there is nothing green about killing a culture. There's been so much talk about sort of wind farm as green energy, getting Europe and getting Norway even more green energy, but not really a lot of consideration of like what green development means. Like it seemed to me talking to him that he had encountered a lot of people who saw themselves as just nudging him towards progress or nudging him towards, you know, oh, this green energy, just, you just need to like, we just need to negotiate and find a compromise so that we can get our way um, and that you'll be okay with it. Um, and so I don't like to think about like zero sum games or like, um, you know, like solutions where not like where so, there's a winner and loser, but sometimes there are situations where there's a winner and a loser, right? And where there's like a real trade-off. And so in those kinds of situations, like how can you say that the people who aren't actually living on the land who've been using it for millennia shouldn't get the priority in terms of what happens there? So I think that that is kind of an example of what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's a great example. And I guess the thing that I struggle with too, especially after hearing a bit of your work, is when we have a player that is like Russia that will invade unprovoked, that will extract resources, is there, okay, so I know that you mentioned, at least in the first episode, there have been meetings where people are kind of strategizing about, hey, this is something we need to keep an eye on, especially because Russia holds so much of the Arctic. How have those, how has, I guess, how has the relationship with Russia for Arctic actors changed since the invasion that you've seen? It used to be that even when Russia had invaded Crimea, people still met at the Arctic Council, other Arctic countries still met at the Arctic Council with Russia and talked through other Arctic issues like conservation, marine protection, uh, people were able to set aside a lot of sort of like bigger picture global things to have some chill conversations about the future of the Arctic, especially in a non-military way. Um, and then 
after Russia invaded Ukraine, those meetings were put on hold. The other seven countries in the Arctic Council said, hey, we can't meet with you and talk about like fish stocks when you're invading Ukraine. Like this just, this is a hard line for us. Um, so those meetings were put on pause, but then it was a few months in and people were like scientists, for example, researchers, policy advocates were saying like, well, there's other stuff we still need to do in the Arctic that we need to collaborate on whether that is climate change projects, uh, scientific observation, uh, marine protection. And so that created this sort of tension where it's like, okay, well, we have stuff that we need to get done, but we don't really want to be working with Russia right now. So the other Arctic countries decided that they would informally collaborate how long TBD, basically that they're going to informally collaborate on things that don't involve Russia until future notice. It kind of remains to be seen what exactly that collaboration is going to look like uh, because Russia has 50% of Arctic shoreline and is a pretty significant player at the Arctic Council at these meetings between all the Arctic countries. Um, but that's kind of where they're at right now is like, let's just do as much as we can in the Arctic without Russia. Do you think that that is sustainable? I, I mean, we sustained it for decades before with the Cold War, right? I don't know. Like, I think it, I think we may be moving towards like a new Cold War. Yeah. So my first episode of this series about uh, national security in the North and how the balance has been impacted by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, we actually look at how scientific collaboration has been impacted because there are scientists uh, on the Russian side and scientists on the Western side that for a long time would work together on stuff about oceans health, or about atmospheric science or about different like animal observation. And uh, now a lot of that has become a lot more difficult. European and Western scientists are often afraid to talk to uh, their Russian counterparts because they don't want them to be seen as collaborating with unfriendly powers. Um, and there's also the you know risk that maybe some of the people that you worked with actually really are into this war. So it, that's been very difficult trying to find a new way forward for a lot of these scientific projects. But one thing that I wish I said, as people are looking to find a new way forward for these scientific projects to like end climate change and to fight climate change is that we're not really fighting climate change now, you know, like there was a real concern. And I think there still is a real concern about what this war means for the study of climate in the Arctic. That concern is not nearly as important as the concern for like the Ukrainian lives that are being damaged by this, the civilians who are fleeing, but that is a real issue. But at the same time, as I sort of look back on the podcast, I also am kicking myself because we're not fighting climate change now. Like, what if we do know that climate change is even worse than it is? Well, like, do you think we'd actually do anything about it? Like, we're already not doing anything about it. So I don't know, that made me kind of like scared for our future. 
like how much do we need to know about climate change to actually take action? I don't know. I don't have an answer, but it made me sad. Do you think that there's like how prevalent is that concern of like we can't collaborate with the Russian scientists because we don't know what political stance they take? Do you think that's like a major blockage? I think that would be absolutely not a major blockage. I think that would be a secondary blockage. I think the main blocks are actually more pressing security issues. So, for example, a Canadian who got on a ship that was traveling through Russian seas and then very quickly realized like, oh, this war is happening and getting worse. And now I'm, you know, on the ship of an unfriendly foreign power. Like, I think that those kinds of situations are the real risk and the major concern. The sort of second concern is also, oh, I don't want, you know, my friends and scientists who are maybe trying to lie low um, to be seen as like, you know, pro-Western in a way that could get them attention and get them in trouble. And then what I would say that like that third, like deep down would be the like, what if my friend is actually like on the wrong side of history? I don't, I don't think that's like the, the main most pressing concern, but between people who love science, who have colleagues and friends, it's definitely like a thing that's on, on people's minds. One reporter that I talked to said that at some point she's like very focused on climate change in the Arctic. And she was saying that at some point people are going to have to start having very difficult conversations about what is the horrific calculus between people dying in a war or people fleeing in hospitable parts of the globe. Um, and those are kind of like the difficult decisions that she feels like people are going to have to make when it comes to collaboration on Arctic science and on climate change science. Uh, so those are difficult decisions. I mean, that's why I said the thing I said earlier, though, though, of course, like, well, like, if we're not solving climate, like, there's so much about climate change that we could already solve now without that information that we don't do. So after conducting this research, I mean, you you personally have had your time in Yellowknife. You just did all this research connecting these linkages in the Arctic. And I'm wondering if this has challenged your sense of personal identity and how you see yourself and and the world around you. Is this something that changed your outlook on, on who you are and, and where you fit? Yeah, it very much did. So when I started this project, I was looking more at military security or like conflicts between states. So for example, um, Finland... I uh, recently decided to join NATO, um, which Finland is like a Northern country that has traditionally always stayed non-aligned. What is this gonna mean for the Arctic and for other Arctic European countries? Questions like that. And as I started to talk more and more to people, I realized that the real questions of security and sovereignty, like the really interesting ones and important ones aren't about states. They're about peoples whose nations have been there so that kind of led us to reshape our podcast and focus more uh, like almost entirely on how these beefs between states impact Northern indigenous nations. 
but in making that shift, I realized pretty quickly that like, well, I realized pretty deep in pretty non quickly that I realized like, maybe I shouldn't be doing this at all. Like, who am I, this like white northerner who's lived somewhere for four years to be having these conversations with people. Um, but it was too late. I was already halfway through. So I think it kind of gave me a lot of questions about what the role is of foreign reporting in general and what the role is of this like so-called objective observer in general and if we should even exist. Um, but I felt like at that point, the best thing that I could do is sort of use the platform that I had to share the really awesome conversations that people were giving me with their time. So yeah, I think it's really challenged my personal sense of identity in that it has, the more that I do journalism, the more I question whether journalism as a concept is even working or if we should just be telling our own stories. And that's something I kind of battle with all the time. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Because like on one hand, you think of it as like, helping to amplify stories that might not be seen. But then I think there's a dilemma there sometimes too, and it makes you ask, why aren't these stories being seen? And why do we have privilege where other people don't? And Yeah, like who am I to be the amplifier? But mm-hmm. I mean, I had a lot of really good conversations with like uh, my editors and my you know senior producers who were saying basically that I'm not an expert in a lot of things. Like there's a lot of things I'm not an expert in, but I am an expert in like making podcasts and making radio that people enjoy listening to. So like that, like, you know, it's my job to like help be like the doula that like like helps the baby be born, helps the story be born. It's not that I'm like, I'm not the baby. The story is the baby. So like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. And why do you think the North in particular attracted you like what do you think it is about it that is is special for someone like you well I grew up in Toronto and so I had a very urban southern experience growing up and I didn't really know much about the north at all um I went to journalism school in New York and then I moved back to Canada and then I really wanted to push myself. I feel like I've always been someone who like lives in the world of extremes. So, you know, like big city like New York. uh, And then I was applying for this job in Yellowknife as like a local reporter uh, in this small Northern community. And I think what really attracted me to it was that it was just so completely different from like anything I'd ever experienced or known. Um, So I moved to Yellowknife. I didn't really know what I was getting into uh it absolutely changed my life you know I have a pickup truck now her name's Lemon she's a little Ford F-150 um I went skidooing for the first time like this winter with one of my best friends like uh I feel like I'm always learning I'm always like close to so much nature that I hadn't been close to before in like a big southern city and it's also either like really warm or really cold, which is incredible. You know, you're like snowshoeing with your friend's dog and it's like minus 35 and the Northern lights are out in December at like 6 PM. It's like really cool. So 
Yeah, I think what appealed to me was just that opportunity to take a risk and do something that was completely different from anything I'd ever done. I wouldn't say that now I'm some kind of like rugged, uh, super outdoorsman, but I think there's room for all kinds of people in the North. Uh, and I think that's been really cool to get to know a place as a community and as a city that I'm part of and not just sort of an idea. Um, so yeah, there's uh, a lot of reasons why I moved up, but I think that's the main one was just trying to like risk it for the biscuit. One thing that I learned while making my podcast that I was super sad that I couldn't find a way to include was that the US during the Cold War built this secret military installation in Greenland. People are familiar with like Thule Air Base. It's like an air base that already exists in, like that still exists in Greenland now. Um, that's a US air base, but they had a secret uh, installation underneath the Greenlandic ice sheet. So Greenland has this huge, huge uh, thick ice sheet over most of the island and they dug underneath it and their plan was they built a series of tunnels and their plan was that they were going to put nuclear ballistic missiles facing Russia under the Greenlandic ice sheet. And they called it Project Ice Worm. Yeah. And it was real thing. Does this exist now? So now there's just all of the waste. So they stopped the project. They realized this is this is a bit of a Dr. Evil idea and this isn't gonna work. Um, but they didn't really clean it up and they figured, well, okay, well, you know, it's under this ice sheet, like who's going to find it? Like it's so far under the ground, under this ice, like no one's going to know. But now climate change is melting the ice sheet and not super, super fast. I'm not saying that the Greenlandic ice sheet is going to like melt into the ocean tomorrow, but you know, as the decades move on, like there's more and more risk that this these underground secrets could maybe someday be revealed wow um yeah and there's also as this uh you know as the ice sheet you know melts or becomes less stable there's also all kinds of worries about the waste because they kind of just abandoned this project um so now greenlanders are holding accountable the danes the De like denmark who allowed the u.s to build this project to clean it up. So the US may or may not really have to do much in terms of cleaning it up. Um, but it was just wild to me to like to hear about this and like learn about this crazy story of how the Arctic is used as this sort of like, like I said, this resource bank for Southern ideas. Right. Like nobody in Greenland was like, well, you want to build a secret network of underground tunnels and point nuclear ballistic missiles at Russia. That was someone's idea. And like, I'm just naming a region. I'm not saying it definitely is, but like that was someone's idea in Arlington, Virginia. You know what I mean? Like that was someone's idea in the like outskirts of D.C. Yeah. There's um, a sense that it's just like a playground. Like. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That is, that is what I learned from this, is like how deep that sense goes. Why do you think it is? Do you think it's just like the history of extraction there and the exploitation of peoples? Mm. I don't 
I don't know why it is, but I think that it's extremely pervasive. I mean, even for me moving up to the North with CBC, part of it was this idea that like the North is a place where I can grow and I can become a better reporter. Like it's this land for me to have these experiences. Like that was how I was approaching this move was like that this is like, you know, fertile land for me to grow. Um, so I think it's like a very, like, it's a mindset that runs deep in a lot of different ways and for a lot of different people. And I don't know how we like turn that around or we like, you know, rethink that. It was like something that I'm working on in myself as well. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Anti-Culture This Week. My name is Josiah Sinanen. Special thanks to our guest this week, Katie Toth. You can find her mini-series, Cold Front, by subscribing to the Things That Go Boom podcast on PRX or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'll have a link in the show notes as well. If you enjoyed the episode, check out our other chats and connect with me on social media. Our website is josiahpodcast.com, where you can find all of our previous episodes and links. I look forward to our next time together. Thank you for celebrating humanity with me and coming on the journey. And let me know your thoughts by sending me a tweet or Instagram message at Josiah Podcast. I'll see you next time.